Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. We're advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, and research. Welcome to the AUKUS Amplified and the first digital health podcast. My name is Dax Steele from the Andrews Institute. I am vice chair of the AUKUS Digital Health Committee. And joining me today will be our distinguished AUKUS Digital Health Committee chairman, Stefan Obini from UCSF as well as his fellow, Peter Schilling, who has some expertise in digital health, specifically as it pertains to artificial intelligence and machine learning. Joe Murad from Methodist Sports Medicine in Indianapolis, another digital health committee member, will be joining us as well. We're here to talk today about some papers from the upcoming AUKUS annual meeting. We have chosen a few papers which have a specific focus on relevant digital health topics. Both Stefano and Peter are the relevant experts on a lot of these topics, so I hope to tap into their expertise to hopefully educate myself and the rest of our members. Well, let's get started. A central theme on most of these papers revolves around the concept of machine learning and artificial intelligence. To a lot of our members, artificial intelligence is something from science fiction and something we've read about or seen in movies, but it's becoming more and more part of our daily lives. We want to see how it relates to total joint arthroplasty and orthopedics. So to get started, Stefano, how would you best explain machine learning? Well, thanks, Dax. That's a great question. Now, think of machine learning tools as a subset of artificial intelligence, which, besides machine learning, can include other models, such as natural language processing or voice recognition. So machine learning is best understood as a way to train a computer to recognize a pattern by showing a computer lots of slightly different examples of that same pattern. That pattern could be an image, such as a type of flower or the face of a person. The more variations of that pattern that a computer is shown, the more likely it is that the computer can recognize that pattern in a picture or a data set that it has never seen before. The way the computer figures this out is to look for specific characteristics that distinguish one pattern from another. For example, the shape of an implant on an x-ray, such as the SROM, is very easy to distinguish from the shape of a different implant like the summit because of the proximal cone. So the computer sees the cone over and over again on pictures that are tagged as SROMs. When it then sees a picture that's never seen before and is asked to figure out what implant is in the picture, it will look for a cone, and if it finds the cone, it will suggest that the image is that of an SROM. So that's how machine learning works at its most basic and rather intuitive way. It's not that different from the way we learn ourselves from the world around us. Well, that's a great explanation. That, that does clear up a lot. Uh, Peter, I understand that there are different types of machine learning algorithms can you describe in simple terms how these algorithms differ one from the other? Yeah, thanks, Dax. That's absolutely right. I think the first way to answer this is to realize why there are different algorithms. And it really comes down to different algorithms to accomplish different jobs, just as you might use a certain tool for a certain job, just as you might use a t-test to analyze some data and yet a chi-square would be indicated for another kind of data. So 
generally speaking, these are divided into two categories, supervised learning and unsupervised learning. Supervised learning is when your algorithm learns from known patterns. And the analogy would be taking a test in school, but you learn from old tests where you're provided the answers. That's an example of supervised learning. Whereas unsupervised learning learns from unknown patterns. So rather than being given tests beforehand, the learning occurs by finding these unknown or hidden patterns within the data. The reason it's important to have different algorithms for different tasks is that the world is very complex. And a mathematical model that you might use to understand, say, the relationship between income and number of years of education is going to be very different from the kind of algorithm that's going to look at a computer image and identify whether or not there's a cat in the image or whether that's an SROM implant. So, Peter, if you took the SROM example from before, how would a supervised algorithm identify an SROM versus an unsupervised algorithm? Right. So it comes down to being able to provide lots and lots of examples of, say, an X-ray that then has a quote-unquote label on it saying what it is. This is an SROM. This is a Depew implant. This is a Stryker implant. And so that is supervised learning. The answer key is provided. And in an unsupervised situation, the system would be given a bunch of X-rays but a lot more. Mm-hmm. And then it's figure out that, hey, actually, I see all these patterns and some of them look alike. That's right. So maybe a very basic example would be, ah, femoral implants generally look like this. A cup of a total hip arthroplasty generally looks like this. They're two distinct clusters of implants. And we wouldn't necessarily have to tell the computer what those implants were. We would figure out based on the shape that those are kind of different entities. And once it sees two alike, you may not know it's an SROM, but they can, they can pair those two pictures and say, I've seen this before, and it looks like that. It doesn't know it's an SROM, but it pulls them out, and that's unsupervised. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Well, I think that's a great transition into starting to talk about our first two papers we've selected. The papers are, the first one is the Automated Detection and Classification of Knee Arthroplasty Designs Using Deep Learning and the second one being application of neural networks in determining implant name from total hip arthroplasty radiographs. And as we've been discussing, it's very important for us as arthroplasty surgeons to recognize implants sometimes when we see the x-rays. And we've all been there where we access different sources of data for trying to find out what the actual implant is. We have fellow physicians, books, Company reps are often good resources, and we're, they're all helping us trying to figure out this task, and sometimes it's quite arduous. So having a computer to do this for us would be a major tool to have at our disposal. So, Stefano, concerning the first paper, how did the authors formulate a strategy to accomplish this for the knee replacement implants? Yeah, yeah that really was a good poster. You know, it's interesting. I like the way they did it. They wanted to answer basically a simple question. Can we train a computer to differentiate between two knee implants on an x-ray. But they also wanted to make sure that the algorithm could determine if there was a knee replacement on the x-ray at all, and then to differentiate a partial from a total knee, and then once it figured out it was a total knee, figure out which of one 
or the other that they gave examples of, A or B, it was. So how did they go about doing that? Well, it turns out that there are many algorithms out there in the public domain that one can simply download. So the algorithm is already designed to solve a specific problem. Like Peter pointed out, different algorithms are designed to solve for different problems. They found an algorithm that was designed to differentiate between images and patterns on images. And then once you get that algorithm, you can train it on whatever data set you want. So you can train that algorithm to look for patterns like flowers or faces, or in this case, x-rays. So the next step was to show the software that should download a bunch of x-rays that had been annotated. As Peter said, they have been shown that the device was told, this is an x-ray of a knee without an implant. This is an x-ray of a knee with a uni. This is an x-ray of a knee with a total knee. And in the subset with total knees, they would say this total knee happens to be A and this total knee happens to be B. In other words, the software is taught that an image represented a partial or total knee or no implant at all. And so this is sort of called, uh, the data set was basically called the ground truth, the teaching set. So the software needs to be told what it is looking at before it can discern what it's looking at. So they took about 250 images and used 70% of these images to train the algorithm. However, they also took some of these same images. It was kind of cool. They tweaked them. And they may have flipped them to so did a reverse image without changing them so much. But by doing that, they actually increased the training data set from about 200 images to over 4,000 images. Then they took 10% to test the model to see if it worked. And then they went out and showed a 20% of their total data sets of 50 images that the system had never seen. And they used that to validate how accurately it could differentiate an extra of a knee with or without an implant if it was a partial or a total, and then what kind of total. And it was very cool because they saw that with this algorithm that had been trained on what amounted to almost 4,000 images, they were able to get 100% accuracy on figuring out whether there was an implant in there at all, it was a uni or a total, and very close to 100% in differentiating between one type of implant and the other. Now, what's interesting, though, and keep in mind that the way this was set up, if this algorithm, and correct me if I'm wrong, Peter, if this algorithm was shown a picture of, say, a striker triathlon, you would not have been able to discern that it's a knee implant at all, right? It might be able to know that it's a total knee versus nothing, but I'm not even sure. It all depends on how they train the algorithm. But it can't tell you that it's a striker triathlon because it's only trained on those two other systems. So this example kind of illustrated nicely the strengths but also the limits of artificial intelligence and the importance of the training data set to the ability of the algorithm to make any kind of prediction. Did I get that right, Peter? Yeah, you did. You sure did. That was a fantastic explanation, Stefano. I'll add a couple of really interesting things I thought about it, and this really truly was a great poster. They really connected the dots, and clearly the people involved in this study had some interesting diverse backgrounds that they were able to pull together to do this paper. So the first thing I'll note is this is an example of transfer learning. So they, as Stefano was saying, took a pre-trained model available online that was actually, I believe it's the ResNet Convolutional Neural Network. Microsoft actually made that, if I'm not mistaken, and then applied it to these new examples of implants. 
that's how they were able to create an algorithm that was so accurate, is that they leveraged algorithms that were out there in the public domain to be used for exactly this sort of thing and to expose this algorithm to really relatively few examples and still get incredible accuracy. The reason that works is that these algorithms, these prepackaged ones created by others, are already really good at identifying basic what we call features of an image. So these algorithms are starting at the level of the pixel, right? Way down, very granular and building up, building up to bigger and bigger and bigger features. So in the beginning, it's looking at just a single pixel. It then advances to the higher level feature of seeing an edge or seeing a corner. So this algorithm that Microsoft made they're leveraging the quote-unquote intelligence of that algorithm to identify edges, to identify corners, and then showing it examples of what they're interested in learning about or having the algorithm predict, which is these implants. So that's pretty special and pretty savvy to do transfer learning. So, Peter, concerning the HIP study, where they're utilizing a similar strategy or maybe more or less the same strategy, what are the major differences you can appreciate in the algorithms that they use? So it's a little hard to tease out just in an abstract, but they don't reference using an algorithm like the prior abstract had where they were looking at knees. So I don't see that they used transfer learning. That would be the main thing. To be honest, otherwise, it's a little bit hard to tease out the details, not because it's not well written, but because it really does come down to the details and seeing a full manuscript about how it was done. I see. So... To me, this software seems similar to facial recognition software that maybe the, a lot of people are more familiar with. Do you feel that facial recognition software and this type of software is similar from what you know and what type of technology they use? Yes, that's exactly right, and that's a great segue. So they're generally using a similar class of algorithm many times for, say, facial recognition or classification of objects and images, you're using what's called a convolutional neural network. So that is the quote-unquote tool that's used for this task. So you're absolutely right. In general, say, facial recognition versus this, identifying a, a different type of object in a picture uses that convolutional neural network. So that's where there's a big similarity. And convolutional CNNs, as they're called, is one type of machine learning. As we talked about earlier, different types of tools for different problems. That's exactly right. Great. So let's move on to the next two papers that are more centered around predicting clinical outcomes using these computer models. And Joe Murad is going to lead that discussion. Joe, take it away. Thanks, Dax. It seems like in the same way an automobile may be able to use computer vision systems to avoid a collision, machine learning can be used to predict adverse outcomes from our care. The first abstract I wanted to talk about was the one that used machine learning to predict one-year improvements in patient-reported outcomes after total hip and total knee arthroplasty. Over the years, we've seen papers looking at predictors of satisfaction after joint replacements. Those studies' methods usually include a regression analysis, Peter, can you help us understand the difference between those traditional statistical approaches versus a machine learning approach? Sure, Joe. Thank you very much. The honest truth is there is very little difference in the approaches. And 
I think this creates an opportunity to become a lot more familiar with machine learning. Many of the approaches in machine learning are the same approaches that were used in statistics, but here's the important distinction and why I wouldn't necessarily always apply the term machine learning to everything that is making predictions. There is predictive analytics, which is the idea that your models are making predictions that someone like you or me can look at and use that prediction to make an informed decision. In machine learning, the emphasis is on the two words that comprise the term, machine and learning. The notion is that we are going to turn over the decision-making to a machine, i.e. a computer, because we've developed a model that is so good at making predictions that we feel very comfortable with the machine making those decisions for us. That's a step beyond simply predictive analytics and moving more to the computer being prescriptive or doing things for us. And finally, the learning part. And computer scientists and people in ML will emphasize this. It's the notion that with more data, that model gets better and better. Moreover, it takes in more data and improves on its own. It's not that the human comes in, feeds it data, and decides the model is better or more accurate. It's the notion that as it sees data, it knows that its predictions are more accurate and swaps out that math for the better math that makes better predictions. So to truly be machine learning, I think both of those have to be a part of the project or the research endeavor. That's a really important thing that I think you brought forward for us to understand. Because if these kind of approaches are adopted into clinical practice, they could have significant implications when deciding when and which patients should undergo elective joint replacement surgery. Stefano, is it likely that if we used a different approach for implementing a machine learning algorithm that it would make the same recommendations and adapt in the same way? You know, Joe, that's a really good point you bring up. And there's two sides to that equation. One is what happens if we change the tool or the machine learning algorithm or the type of algorithm we use. And the other has to do with the data set that's fed to that algorithm. So machine learning is simply another way to run a statistical regression analysis using very large data sets, just like Peter just said. And just like you can run a Spearman correlation or a pair of t-tests on a data set, depending on what question you're trying to answer, there are variations on this ML theme as well. And ML is what we say for shorthand for machine learning. You'll see that a lot. So finding the algorithm that can best translate the data you're looking at is kind of the art of data science. It is also very important that not only can different algorithms provide different results, so can different data sets. So this is because machine learning is biased to the data that the algorithm is trained on, and that's the term that we use on that, biased. If there was a bias inherent in the data, it will bias the results of the algorithm. So let's take an example. This particular data set we're looking at was collected in the United States, where narcotic use for pain management is very high. Now, if we input data from a patient living in another country, like, say, Germany, where narcotic use for pain management is much lower, the algorithm would be quite inaccurate. So another way to think about it is that a lawyer trained in the United States on U.S. law is not going to be particularly useful if they try to practice law in Germany where the laws are different. So not only is the choice of algorithm important in identifying the correct solution, so to speak, but the data set that's fed to the algorithm can bias it to reach answers that are really only accurate for the 
population, if you're talking about people, or the data set, if you're talking about data sets, on which it was trained. It doesn't make the software or the tool not useful. It just happens to be only useful if applied to a population or a data set that's similar, analogous, or identical to the one in which it was trained. Did I get that right? You sure did, and it really touches on how valuable data is. And it's not just the volume of data, it's diverse data. So you want to make sure that when you're feeding these algorithms data, that you're getting the unusual examples, the weird examples. Because at a certain point, it will have already seen enough examples of, say, a uh, certain type of knee implant or hip implant. You want the unusual ones. And what Dr. Beeney said as well also hits on the notion that sometimes these things are quote-unquote black boxes. The equations in the math are so complex that it might be really good at making an accurate prediction. However, we're not really sure why it's making that prediction. It can't be explained. We don't know what the causal variables really are. That makes a lot of sense when you explain it that way. And it also leads into one of the problems that the authors of the next abstract were trying to solve. They tried to develop a machine learning algorithm to predict sustained post-operative opioid prescriptions after total hip arsoplasty. Peter, can you explain what the value in using a machine learning algorithm in this study is? Is it something that could have been accomplished without these systems? And does machine learning make the results of the study more robust? Nope, not at all. In fact, it really is an issue around semantics. You could call this a machine learning approach, or you could call it a statistical approach. Statistics and machine learning are very close relatives with slightly different heritage. That can be confusing or intimidating. Let me give an example. Statistics, and especially among doctors, we know what sensitivity is. We know what positive predictive value is. In machine learning, they don't call it that. They call it precision. They call it recall. And they use terms like F1, which in medicine, we don't know what those things are. So there is a ton of overlap. And so calling this a machine learning approach versus a statistical approach really is semantics. And one of the things that I like about using machine learning algorithms for large data sets is that I find hazard ratios, especially if somebody gives me a table of 16 different hazard ratios for different variables that impact an outcome, super hard to translate into practice. But sometimes one of the outputs that you can ask in a machine learning algorithm to do is to cluster patients, in this case, into one, say, three groups. A patient that is at high risk, low risk, or moderate risk of becoming an opioid user. And when the machine learning algorithm clusters patients into A, B, or C paradigm, it has already taken into account all the potential variables for me on my behalf and gives me a pretty simple answer. This patient is at high risk, and that high risk could have a number around it greater than, say, 5%, say. And I find that to be more useful as a user of the output that I would get from some of the more traditional statistical data analysis tools. Gosh, that is so important, Stefano. And it really hits on the notion that these research studies, it's wonderful. These are very exciting results, but they also have to be tailored to fit into our workflow, right? And what you're saying, Stefano, is that presenting the information in a way that's most useful to me and most easily understood, that's the best way. 
And so we actually have a very long ways to go in terms of not only developing these algorithms and approaches, but then being able to integrate that into practice. You know, that's interesting. And as we've sort of touched upon already, one of the advantages of these systems is that it can continuously learn. With shifts in opioid prescribing patterns, how do you envision enabling a model like this to be implemented in clinical practice so that it can continue to learn from shifts in our prescribing patterns? Yeah, I think that one, Joe, is, you're absolutely correct. The beauty of machine learning is that it can be a continuous learning system. And so let's just say you start out with 1,000 patients, each of which contributes, say, five different features to the model. And let's say the model is 75% accurate overall. But as more data is fed into the machine, the algorithm improves its accuracy. And once you get to 10 million patients, it might be 85% accurate. So the further, as we discussed above, with more data, especially broader data from larger populations, some of the biases inherent to the initial data set may be diminished, and the algorithm can be more broadly applicable. And then once they become really truly broadly applicable, that's when you start seeing them increasingly used in clinical practice because they'll become simply better and accurate and really useful. If, on the other hand, the new patients fed to the machine are all very similar to the original cohort, the biases become even more entrenched, and in fact, the algorithm stops being widely applicable. So that's one way that it's incumbent on us to not only collect the data, but to share it to broadly distribute it so it can feed these algorithms. And also, the accuracy of the data helps. The more accurate it is, the more likely it is it's going to come up with a good answer for us. That was something that I was hoping that you would touch upon because it sounds like if we work within these siloed data sets that we're going to have these algorithms learn our own biases and that the only way that we can have our collective practices represented in it is if we pool our data into a more robust data set. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. So if you look at some of these papers that are identifying implants, the bottleneck is not the know-how. The bottleneck is having enough data and enough examples and enough unusual examples to train the model. So if there was an initiative that brought a lot of academic centers together, any center for that matter, together to put data together and devote money to tagging the data, quote-unquote annotating the data, that problem could be solved extremely quickly, very quickly. So that is really one of the bottlenecks at this point. It is all about collaboration and bringing data together and breaking down data silos in a responsible way. So to build on that, one of the great benefits of the fact that now something like 95% of the medical data collected in the United States today is digitized, thanks to the much maligned required use process, we now actually have the data that will allow us to make those correlations. For example, an x-ray may not be annotated with an SROM, but the op report will say what implant was used. And there is software that can read the op report and tag the x-ray that was taken, say, within 24 hours of that particular body part, and then state this film now has this tag. That tag can be used now for machine learning. So we're getting to the point since we've just finished sort of the process of digitizing our digital healthcare system, that we'll start to see the application of this technology actually bear fruit. 
because up until now, a lot of people have been sitting back going, gosh, just put billions of dollars into these systems. There's no output. What's the benefit? It makes our lives so difficult. It's so expensive. All true. It just takes a while to build the infrastructure and then the data set against which these algorithms can work in a way that can actually become useful to us. And I'm not sure we're there yet, Peter. I'm not sure you agree, but we're looking at probably over the next decade, all these technologies are going to become ubiquitous and highly accessible and very accurate. Like we just saw in these papers, it's, you don't have to hire an entire data team to build algorithms. You can download them from the web, Google, Microsoft, they're making them accessible to you. They're the best in the world, top-of-class algorithms, essentially for free. All you need is someone who knows a little bit about computer science to feed the data to the algorithm and spit out the information. It's an exciting time. That's absolutely right, Stefano. I think a saying probably fits in this circumstance, which is it's going to take longer to happen than we think. However, when it happens, it's going to happen faster than you can possibly imagine. And that's because of these bottlenecks. And once these bottlenecks are relieved, then things will progress. The places that you will see machine learning excel most quickly are the places where there is clean, annotated data. And that right now is in the world of radiology, that it's the cleanest data that's digitized that we can aggregate. And it will follow from there. Why is it going to take longer? Well, I think the thing that we also overlook is that a lot of these things are trained, they're trained on retrospective data. And that's great. That's the starting point. However, we need to train these and see how they perform on prospective data, which can be a totally different kettle of fish before we're actually going to release it and use it with patients. Moreover, it should also fit into the workflow. So it's going to take time to get there. Okay, I think this was a great deep dive into artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning, the present use, the information behind it. And I certainly learned a lot. I hope our members did as well. And I think it gave us a good insight and a look into the future of how these systems are going to improve our practices one day. I'd like to thank all the participants, Joe, Peter, and Stefano. You all did a great job. And I want everyone to look out for further podcasts from our AUKUS Amplified channel in the future. They will be coming up shortly, and there will be some done at the upcoming AUKUS meeting as well. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit aahks.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, and investigate in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.